Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. Today, we talk with Dr. Heather Rendell, Assistant Professor of Global Policy in the Humphrey School of Public Affairs at the University of Minnesota, Twin Cities. Heather is the co-author of a recent study that documents how dams built in the United States have affected Native American reservations across the country. We'll talk about some of the history behind this issue, the significant scale of reservation land that was flooded, and the effects on indigenous communities. We'll also talk about recent efforts to remove dams and how those removals can benefit communities and ecosystems. Stay with us. All right, Heather Randell from the University of Minnesota Twin Cities. Welcome to Resources Radio. Thank you so much for having me. It's our pleasure. And Heather, we're going to talk today about a really fascinating new analysis that you recently published with um, Andrew Curley, who is a friend of the show. He's been on the show before. But before we do that, we always ask our guests how they got interested in working on environmental issues. And in particular for you, I'm curious how you ended up working on this topic of uh, dams and the displacement of Native Americans, because I know you in the past have worked on other types of topics. Yeah, sure. Um, so going far, far back, um, my dad is a veterinarian, so uh, I grew up in childhood wanting to follow in his footsteps and become a vet. I loved animals. And then by my teenage years, I was like, I don't really want to take care of sick animals. I think I want to save the earth. You know, I want to be a conservation biologist. And so I went to college. I majored in biology, which I also discovered was mostly pre-med people. So I was like, this is less of what I was imagining of saving uh, the earth. But um, my the summer after my freshman year, I did this research program in the Peruvian Amazon. And my group was studying frogs. Um, and so we would go out on boats and catch frogs and um, rub their backs with a little um, Q-tip to get skin secretions to analyze for their chemical properties. And then we also went and visited with some communities and, and talked to them. And after that experience, I was like, huh, I think I'm a little more interested in the you know, talking to people part of the environment rather than the um, ecology, biology part. So that kind of set me on a, a different path, um, thinking about kind of human environment relations. So I ended up going to um, Duke and getting a master's in environmental management, um, where I worked on issues of environment and malaria in East Africa. Um, and I should rewind a little bit to college. Um, during my senior year, I was in a class where we, the whole class together published this review paper. So we spent the whole year um, doing research and collectively writing a paper. And the topic, which was picked by uh, the professor, was kind of environmental change and um, infectious diseases. And so my disease that I researched was um, schistosomiasis, which is um, transmitted in tropical rivers and lakes. Um, and it, it's this parasite, but it requires this little snail that lives in the river. And I found out that dam building can really exacerbate transmission of this disease. And so that kind of put a seed in my mind about the social and health impacts of dams. And so uh, fast forward, I did my master's. I actually spent a little uh, bit of time at Resources for the Future as a research assistant before I started my PhD in sociology, 
where I uh, ended up focusing on uh, the social impacts of dam building in the Brazilian Amazon. And so I worked um, and I still work on um, issues of displacement populations who uh, the dam flooded their farmland, flooded their homes and cities and kind of looking at um, how that impacted them. My other line of work is focused on climate change. Um, so I look at the um, health and well-being impacts of um, climate shocks, primarily in East Africa. So almost all of my work is international. And so, you know, how did I end up uh, doing this study on tribal land in the U.S.? So that brings me to 2016. Um, I was a postdoc living in D.C., and that's when the Dakota Access Pipeline protests were happening. Um, that, you know, was really catching my attention. And so much of the discussion was about water. You know, uh, water is life and um, Lake Oahe being this important source of water for the Standing Rock tribe um, and, you know, potentially being uh, polluted by the oil pipeline. And through that, I learned that Lake Oahe to begin with was created by a dam. Um, so it used to be just part of the Missouri River um, and decades and decades prior it had been dammed. And so that created the lake that they were now depending on for clean water. And through looking into that, I found um, this PhD dissertation by this um, woman named Harriet Skye, and I started reading the dissertation and learning about her. And so she was a member of the Standing Rock Sioux tribe. Um, she was a pioneering native journalist. She hosted this TV show in the 70s and 80s called Indian Country Today. And then after this really successful career, she went back to college. She had never gotten a college degree at age 55 and then ended up getting a PhD from UC Berkeley. And her dissertation was on um, the history of the Oahe Dam and the Standing Rock people. And so I was reading this and kind of hearing about um, the, the trauma and thinking about kind of, you know, this is like, you know, many generations later, another kind of environmental injustice that the tribe was experiencing. And so that put, you know, the thought in the back of my mind wondering, you know, how widespread is this? How, how many reservations have lost land due to the flooding under dams? And so um, eventually I connected uh, with um, my co-author, Andrew Curley, who um, I know he's been on the show before. He's Navajo and um, is an expert on um, infrastructure development, particularly water infrastructure and natural resources development and um, on reservations. And so we teamed up and um, wrote this paper. Fantastic. That's so fascinating. And of course, we'll have a link to the paper in the show notes. The title of the paper is Dams and Tribal Land Loss in the United States. And to start off our sort of substantive conversation, it'd be great if you could give us just kind of like a big picture sense of the scale of this issue. Um, so, for example, like, you know, how many of these dams are out there that affected reservation lands? How much land are we talking about? Just kind of big picture stuff like that. Sure. So I'll first step back and talk about dams in the U.S. more broadly, because um, there are a lot of them. Um, so kind of generally, before I focus on um, tribal land, um, there's uh, 
about 92,000 dams uh, currently existing in the U.S., according to the National Inventory of Dams, which is managed by the Army Corps of Engineers. Um, and that does not even count the smallest dams, like ones under six feet tall. Um, and so many of these, you know, 92,000 dams are pretty small. Most of them are privately owned. Um, only 2% of them are actually over 100 feet in height. And so of these dams, you know, we had small dams built from the colonial era through the 1800s. You know, you can think about dams that were um, creating small reservoirs or powering water mills for milling and other industries. Um, and then you enter the 20th century, and that's when really large dams start to be constructed. So we call them mega dams. And that era um, really peaked in the 1930s to 1960s. A lot of these were federally owned, really big dams like the Hoover Dam, the Glen Canyon Dam. And so nowadays, the U.S. has basically stopped building new dams um, and is currently trying to figure out what to do with all of these aging and potentially hazardous dams. And so for our study, we wanted to know how much tribal land has been flooded under the reservoirs of dams. And so, you know, despite treaties signed between Native nations and the U.S. government that guaranteed that land would remain theirs in perpetuity, um, the government has time and again violated these treaties, uh, dispossessing tribes of their land. And so we wanted to see how much dam building has contributed to Native land dispossession. And so to do this, we needed data both on the location of the dam and also the spatial extent of its reservoir. You know, how big was the reservoir and where is it? Um, and so there's two sources of data we use, two databases um, that of dams and their reservoirs, um, and those encompassed about 7,900 dams in the U.S. So that's a small minority of the 92,000 dams, but the um, dams that we had access to are large and medium-sized dams. So these are going to be the ones that cause the most flooding. And so we focused on federal reservations. Um, you know, many of these were established through treaties in the 1800s, as well as Oklahoma tribal statistical areas. Um, and so these were established during the early and mid-1800s during the period of forced removal. Um, and so this is when dozens of tribes from elsewhere in the country were essentially relocated um, to what was called, quote, Indian territory. Um, and that eventually became the state of Oklahoma. And so most of that land was subsequently removed from tribal control, whether it be through allotment policies. And then when Oklahoma was established as a state, it essentially illegally extended jurisdiction over all the land in the state and kind of informally dissolved these um, what were reservations. So we look kind of separately at um, current federal reservations and then tribal land in Oklahoma. And so by overlaying um, geospatial data on tribal land with uh, the location of dams and reservoirs, we found that um, about 1.13 million acres of tribal land have been flooded under the reservoirs of 424 dams. And so to give you some perspective, um, this amounts to an area larger than Great Smoky Mountains National Park, Grand Teton National Park, and Rocky Mountain National Park combined. 
Um, and so we found that 54 federal reservations in 19 um, Oklahoma tribal statistical areas um, have had land flooded by dams. Um, and in terms of where they are, you know, most of the affected reservations are west of the Mississippi, primarily because that's where most reservation land is. Um, but dams in our analysis um, have flooded land all the way from Maine down to San Diego. Um, so it really is a widespread occurrence. Yeah. And there's some really fantastic maps, as one might expect in the paper, uh, especially on page five of the paper. There's this great national map, and then you sort of zoom into some specific reservations and dams, and it's, it's a really, really fun read. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I really like making maps. I, I should have been a geographer, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so one particularly important period of history with regard to dam building uh, affecting reservations, it all centers around something called the Pick Sloan Plan. Some folks uh, in our audience might have heard of it, but my guess is that most have not. So can you tell us what was the Pick Sloan Plan and how it affected Native American reservations along particularly the Missouri River? Sure. So this plan arises uh, in the wake of a big flood of the Missouri River in 1943, which inundated millions of acres of farmland. And so that prompted Congress to pass a Flood Control Act um, the next year, which established the Pick Sloan Plan. And what it was was a really extensive infrastructure project um, in the Missouri River Basin that included over 100 dams, um, over 1,000 miles of levees, and millions of acres of irrigation systems. And so the primary purpose of this plan was flood control to prevent massive floods from happening again. Um, but it was also used for uh, improved navigation, hydropower, irrigation, things like that. And so the plan included a set of five large dams on the Missouri River um, that were built in the 50s and 60s. And these dams flooded land on seven reservations in North Dakota, South Dakota, and Nebraska. And that includes the Oahe Dam um, that I mentioned that affected Standing Rock. And so in total, um, over 350,000 acres of reservation land was flooded by these dams. And so one of them, the Garrison Dam, flooded land on the Fort Berthole Reservation, which is home to the Mandan, Hidatsa, and Arikara Nation. Um, and this is the single most flooded reservation in the U.S. Um, 152,000 acres were flooded under the reservoir of this dam. And so um, the dams and dams in general tend to flood river bottomlands. So this land is often the most valuable, fertile, and also densely settled. And so um, the social and cultural and economic impacts of dams on tribes, you know, tend to be quite severe. Um, so looking at Fort Berthold uh, in particular, the dam displaced 80% of the reservation's tribal members. It destroyed almost 95% of their agricultural land. Uh, it flooded entire towns. It flooded their hospital, their tribal headquarters. And people were relocated to kind of dry, less fertile upland areas. So they were able to grow less food. Unemployment rose. It just had uh, a really big toll on the tribe. And similar things happened on uh, the other reservations, on Standing Rock, on Cheyenne River, um, on, on the other reservations as well. So it was really devastating for the tribes in, uh, in that region. Yeah, having spent some time and read a little bit about um, the story on Fort Berthold in particular, it's 
it's really, you know, really tragic when you start to understand the details of how this affected people's lives and, you know, flooding out cemeteries and, and homelands and traditional, you know, like food gathering grounds. You know, if you go to the Fort Berthold Reservation, the capital is called Newtown because it's the new town they had to build when the, the flood came. So, um, yeah, just really profound consequences. So that example on Fort Berthold, it's really striking. I wonder if you can maybe give us another example that comes to mind. Yeah, so there's so many, um, but this is a, a, an interesting one, um, the case of the Coolidge Dam. And so this was built on the Gila River in Arizona. Um, and so the context of this is that um, by the late 1800s, there were an increasing number of white settlers farming in Arizona, and they needed irrigation water. And so they diverted water uh, from the Gila River to their farms to irrigate their crops. And this depleted the water supply uh, for the Gila River Indian community, which is located nearby. And so to improve water availability for the Gila River community, um, in the late 1900s, the Bureau of Indian Affairs decided to construct a dam on the Gila River upstream. But this dam was actually on the San Carlos Apache Reservation. And so half, about half the irrigation water from this dam was allotted to the Gila River Indian community and half was allotted to non-native farmers. So not really intended to benefit the tribe whose land it was constructed on. Um, and beyond irrigation water, uh, hydropower from the dam provided energy for mining developments in the area. And so the San Carlos tribe fought against uh, the dam's construction and eventually reluctantly agreed um, after the government made some concessions. Um, they had to relocate farms and homes. They provided $150,000 in compensation to the tribe. Um, and uh, the reservoir also flooded a tribal burial ground. And so the tribe was uh, opposed to disinterring and moving uh, their ancestors. So they, the government actually placed a concrete slab over the graves um, to cover them. And so before the dam, uh, the tribe had bred cattle, they farmed corn and wheat, they had a you know, fairly successful agricultural economy, but the dam flooded most of the farmland. Again, you know, more fertile kind of river valley areas, um, which really destroyed that agricultural economy. Um, and beyond that, it's kind of an, another interesting case. Um, so the engineers who had, you know, determined how much capacity the reservoir would have, you know, based on river flow calculations, they um, didn't do a very good job with their calculations. And, um, you know, that era was kind of uh, a period of drought. So the reservoir um, didn't really fill up very much um, and was far below capacity of, you know, what it what it was proposed to be able to irrigate. And so at the dam's dedication, um, the comedian Will Rogers, who was actually Cherokee, uh, said, quote, if this was my lake, I'd mow it because it was literally like <laughs> there was no water. It was just grass. Um, so that is uh, the story of the Coolidge Dam. Wow, that is quite the story. So you uh, sort of alluded to this earlier, Heather, but I'm wondering if you could say a little bit more about what types of consultation, if any, uh, occurred between the federal government and tribes in the construction of dams when they were built by the federal government. Uh, and, and I'm curious as to whether the consultation that occurred 
uh, in those cases was similar or somehow different from consultation that may have occurred when the federal government wanted to build a dam that did not affect tribal lands? Yeah, that's a good question. And I can only speak to, um, you know, some anecdotes that I've read about because there's just so many cases. And for many of them, there's not a ton of information. Um, but from what I gather, there's often no to limited consultation. And, you know, if there is consultation, it's frequently in name only. Um, and it's, you know, through much uh, activism and pushback that um, tribes can, you know, improve the, the compensation that they receive. Um, so an example is um, from Harriet Skye's dissertation on Standing Rock and the Oahe Dam. She says, quote, when the bureaucrats came to talk with the Indians in 1950, construction was already underway. And so that's, you know, the level of consultation they had. Um, so and my impression as well, I know there were um, non-tribal towns flooded by um, by these dams. Um, my husband's grandfather, I guess, was actually from a town in rural North Dakota that was flooded by the Oahe Dam as well. But in general, um, and not surprisingly, the dams tended to be located and designed to flood the least amount of white land possible. Um, so it was just kind of less relevant um, because they were um, avoiding, you know, cities like Bismarck, North Dakota, for example. It was not going to flood that. Um, it was going to flood the reservations. Yeah, that's interesting. It would be so fascinating to look at, like, maybe the Tennessee Valley Authority or something like that in Tennessee where, you know, there there are... I don't know if there are any reservations in, in that area. There probably are. But it would be interesting to look and see the sort of like the socioeconomic impacts of, of those types of dams as well. Maybe people have done that study and I'm just not aware of it, but it sounds like maybe an interesting question. So, Heather, can you say a little bit more about the types of compensation, again, if any, that people were offered when these dams came into play? You mentioned a couple examples already, but I, I'm curious if any more come to mind. Yeah, so again, it varied kind of depending on what was lost due to construction of the dam. So compensation often included monetary compensation to the tribe for damages, um, rebuilding homes and community infrastructure, relocating cemeteries, things like that. So an example from Fort Berthold, um, the tribe was initially forced to accept a settlement of about $5 million, which was... $33 per acre of land flooded, which was, you know, really undervalued. And with that, they were supposed to, you know, relocate their towns, reconstruct everything. Um, and so the tribe actually had a private appraisal done, which valued their losses at about $22 million. So they, you know, petitioned Congress to be um, compensated that amount. They ended up being awarded um, almost $13 million, um, but the settlement like denied them the right to actually use the shoreline of the new lake for you know, grazing or fishing or hunting. Um, and interestingly, like 50 years later, um, the U.S. government essentially acknowledged that the tribes that were affected by the Pixloan plan were not fairly compensated for their losses at the time. Um, and they gave a pretty large scale additional compensation to make up for these. So in 1992, the tribes of Fort Berthold were awarded almost $150 million from the federal government to essentially atone for um, the undercompensation they received at the time. 
That's really interesting. And I'm just thinking back to that initial undercompensation. There's actually kind of a, a somewhat famous picture um, that folks could look up. It's of um, the then chairman of the three affiliated tribes, George Gillette, um, who is pictured in the background during the signing ceremony as the Secretary of Interior signs the agreement that authorized the, the flooding that was to take place. And, and he's literally crying, like the, the, the chairman of the tribe in the background as the Secretary signs the agreement. It's just a really, again, a very striking uh, sort of poignant moment. So, um, Heather, uh, just, you know, maybe one more question before we go to our top of the stack segment, um, which is about something you mentioned earlier, and that is the the fact that some dams in the United States are, are unsafe. Um, you know, some of them, maybe many of them, have environmental consequences that are significant. Uh, there's growing momentum now in the United States to help restore ecosystems and protect communities by removing dams that may be unsafe or that have, you know, major impacts. Can you talk a little bit about you know, where and when that dam removal is occurring, where it might occur in the future, and then why you and Andrew in your paper make the argument that, you know, removing dams uh, that affect Native Americans should be prioritized. Yeah, so um, like you mentioned, a lot of dams are aging. They're in, you know, unsafe conditions. There's expensive repairs that would be needed on them to bring them up to code and to safety standards. Um, so most dams, so about 2,000 dams have been removed thus far in the U.S. Uh, the vast majority were really tiny, were privately owned, and basically the owner, you know, it was more cost effective for them to remove the dam rather than repair it. But there have actually been a few really large-scale dam removals, mostly in the Pacific Northwest. Um, and these have come primarily after decades of activism uh, from local tribes and allies. And these big dam removals have primarily been focused on salmon, restoring salmon migratory habitat, and uh, the indigenous livelihoods that depend on salmon. Um, and so there were a pair of dams about 10 years ago removed on the Elwa River in Washington state. And it's been kind of amazing to see the ecosystem and the river recover after the removal. And currently we're in the midst of the largest dam removal in history. Uh, there are four dams that are being removed on the Klamath River in Southern Oregon and Northern California, which uh, once they're all removed, it's gonna reopen about 400 miles of the river to salmon and other migratory fish. Um, so the first was removed last year. The second dam uh, removal actually started last week. And that was very much uh, a result of, of tribal activism. Um, and actually, the U.S. government in Biden's um, Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act um, passed a few years ago, there's uh, money allocated to dam removal as well as dam repairs. So there is federal funding for this. Um, and so, you know, going back to our paper, you know, beyond salmon, which is where a lot of the focus on um, kind of dams effects on tribes has been, um, Andrew and I argue that removing dams can serve as a form of land back for Native nations. So dam removal can be a way to restore tribal sovereignty over uh, their ancestral land and enable tribes to really rehabilitate the land and water ecosystems that supported their livelihoods for thousands of years and were damaged by dam construction. Yeah, that's really interesting. And, and for listeners who might not be familiar with that term land back, um, just, you know, pop it into a search engine and, and you'll learn uh, about that movement that is, um, you know, certainly growing as well. 
You know, I think we have time for one more quick question, Heather, which is um, just to like make clear that this is a complex story, as many environmental stories often are, and as many stories about Native American people often are. Um, your paper also discusses some instances where tribes don't want dams removed, but instead they want them repaired and maintained and to ensure their safety because there are benefits that the dam now provides to the community. Can you give an example of that and help us understand you know, why in some cases the preference is to keep the dam? Sure, yeah. So there were actually some dams uh, built by the Bureau of Indian Affairs on reservations um, that were ostensibly built for the benefit of tribes. Um, they were called the Indian Irrigation Projects. Um, so to provide, you know, water um, to, to tribes. And I, I'll note that despite that, um, there have been studies that found that even these dams tended to benefit nearby white farmers more so than the tribes. But um, some of these um, BIA dams have been in need of repairs for decades to restore their functionality and safety. Um, and so one of these is the Four Horns Dam on the Blackfeet Reservation in Montana. And so it was built in the early 1900s for irrigation and drinking water. But some of its equipment had never been updated since the early 1900s. And the tribe actually negotiated for almost 40 years. Um, and finally, in 2016, they won a settlement with the federal government to provide funds to rebuild the dam. And so the dam was rebuilt a few years ago, and it now allows the reservoir to store more water for the tribe. Um, and the uh, Federal Infrastructure Act I uh, mentioned actually provides funds to repair seven uh, BIA dams on reservations that are currently in unsafe condition. Um, and beyond repairs, there have been a few cases where tribes have actually taken ownership of dams. Um, so the Confederated Salish and Kootenai tribes on the Flathead Reservation in Montana purchased a hydropower dam that was on their reservation. And so now they own it. They receive the you know, financial benefits from it. They can manage it the way they want. That's really interesting. Um, yeah, so many of these stories are just, you know, unique. And um, as you said, it's hard to sort of draw simple narratives around them. Um, so I really appreciate you, you know, sharing all of this richness and complexity. Um, I'd love for us now to go to our last question of the show that we ask all of our guests, which is to recommend something that's at the top of your literal or your metaphorical reading stack that you think is really great, that you think our listeners might enjoy. And I'll start us off um with a book that I read on this very subject a couple of years ago um, that uh, that I sort of stumbled across in a library, and it's called Damned Indians. Uh, so it's about this exact topic that we're talking about today. It's by Michael Lawson. The book is fairly old. It's from 1994, and it shows its age in some ways. Um, but if you just want to learn about some basic history, uh, particularly of the Pick Sloan Plan and the Missouri River dams, then uh, this book provides uh tons and tons of rich detail on the processes of building the dam and the negotiations or lack thereof uh, and lots of other details. So, so I think that's a, a pretty good one if you want to go deeper on this topic. Um, how about you, Heather? What's at the top of your stack? Yeah, no, the book you suggested is excellent. So um, I'm actually in the middle of a book. Um, it was released a few years ago, but I have two little kids, so I'm very behind on my uh, recreational reading. Um, but it is really wonderful. It's called Yellowbird. It's by Sierra Crane Murdoch, who's a journalist. 
and it was actually a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. So this is nonfiction, and it's actually set on Fort Berthold Reservation, and it's it's actually a murder mystery, and it's a true one. A, a, a tribal member is kind of trying to figure out what happened to a missing person, um, and but it is set in the context of, you know, a history of the tribe being affected by uh, the Garrison Dam. And it's very much set in um, the context of the fracking boom. So the book takes place in the early 2010s. Uh, Fort Berthold was um, very uh, heavily involved in fracking at that time. And so if you're interested, you know, through this kind of weaving tale of this woman's search for a missing person, you learn a lot about uh, federal policy towards tribes, about the history of the dam, and about what the fracking boom has done to, you know, places in general and to Fort Berthold in, uh, in particular. It's a really fascinating book. I totally second that endorsement. In fact, I recommended that book on this show like a, a year and a half ago or something because I was reading it and um, was loving it and um, actually got the chance to talk to the author as well. Um, so anyway, just totally second that recommendation. It's it's really, really wonderful book. Well, one more time, uh, Heather Randell from the University of Minnesota, Twin Cities. Thank you so much for coming on the show, sharing this fascinating work with us. Uh, and for helping us understand all of its complexity. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. You've been listening to Resources Radio, a podcast from Resources for the Future, or RFF. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. This podcast is made possible with the generous financial support of our listeners. You can help us continue producing these kinds of discussions on the topics that you care about by making a donation to Resources for the Future online at rff.org donate. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson, with music by me, Daniel Raby. Join us next week for another episode.